This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I thought of a great way that Adam could uh, really form community and stay on top of the topic he loves. He could start a podcast. It is a good way. Welcome to Hello PhD podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk about the value of a PhD in the workplace and share some tips for becoming a lifelong learner. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 199. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Episode 199. You can just taste the suspense, Josh. What could possibly happen in episode 200? We don't even know. We don't know. We can't tell you because we don't know, but I imagine it will be a memorable experience for all involved. (laughs) I bet it'll be just like this one, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Also an option. We do have a beer this time. We, We skipped it last time. We did a Just the Abstract episode. Uh, covering GREs, so if you need to follow back up on that one, you can go check out episode 198. But today we do have a beer, and it's something that you have picked out. That's right. I'm going to open it right now. I don't think we've done an opening live on the show before. Of course we have. (laughs) Hundreds of times. (laughs) That's probably true. Probably true. All right, Dan, today we are sampling the, uh, this is Sorbet from Aslan Beer Company in Herndon, Virginia. Uh, I think they have some locations elsewhere, but this was from the Herndon branch. And Dan, this was, this was my favorite beer I had there and was lucky enough that they had cans available for purchase. So I had to get some for you to try uh, with me here on the show. So that's what we're going to do. And I think I delivered it to you at some point. I, I had one in the fridge, and I have one sitting out that I'm sure isn't going to be as good. But the one in the fridge is the one I'm drinking now, and it's cold. All right. Well, this is classified as a milkshake IPA style beer. Doesn't that sound delicious? I don't know what that is. It, it seems like a unusual juxtaposition of flavors and textures to me. Do you have any background on the milkshake IPA for me? Yeah, Dan, uh, I did not realize when I first had this beer that this was a milkshake IPA, nor had I ever heard the term milkshake IPA. Um, But a little research is that a milkshake IPA is a hazy IPA brewed with milk sugar. And I think we've probably had beers that are brewed with milk sugar on the show before. They kind of have this creamy, foamy mouthfeel. I think I would remember if I ate milk sugar in a beer before, but maybe not. That's possible. It definitely has a creamy a creamy quality to it. It is extremely fruit forward, Josh. I assume this is why you like it. Yeah, very fruity. Uh, this one has peach and mango. But Dan, I think for me, the most prominent flavor is this vanilla, this creamy vanilla-like flavor. Almost I get reminiscent of like a cream soda, which I like I cream soda. That. I can see that. Uh, but also, certainly there's some of that IPA hoppy characteristics. So I think I really like that juxtaposition of sweet with the bitter floral notes of the hops. I think I would like to try more iterations of beer like that. I, that is fair to me. It is, it is very sweet. 
I wouldn't say it's a sugary quality, but because it's so fruit forward, it does taste sweet. I would say the closest thing, if you are at home wondering what this tastes like, if you've ever had a Bellini, which is, I think, like Prosecco in peach juice or peach puree, that's what this mm, yeah. tastes like to me. Yeah, like, I mean, what's not to love, Dan? I mean, peach, Bellini, cream soda, I mean, what's not to love? You're living the dream, Josh. All right, Dan. Well, we have some thank yous to hand out. Uh, first, we wanted to say thanks to our friends at Promega. Using live cells in your research can be pivotal to understanding in vivo mechanisms and conditions. Cell line authentication is key to success and reproducibility in science. You can learn all about proper cell culture techniques such as and answer questions such as should you use 2D or 3D culture systems. All this and more at promega.com slash hellocells. All right, Josh. Well, today we are opening the mailbag once again. We have an email from a listener, and uh, let's get right to it. All right, Dan, I love receiving emails from listeners who have listened to the show for a while and indicate ways that the show has helped their career for good or bad. I don't know if we've ever received an email about or from someone who took our advice and it went poorly. We certainly didn't read it on the show, Josh. <laughs> Maybe you deleted I, I shred those immediately. <laughs> I print them and then shred them. Okay, this one came from Adam. So Adam says, I wrote you three years ago to say thank you for all the advice and perspective given on your podcast. I spent a lot of time listening to YouTube my senior year of undergrad, so I was trying to decide what to do about pursuing graduate school. I chose to work full-time for an employer who would help fund my master's degree so that I could pursue a master's in robotics while furthering my professional experience. You'll be happy to know, three years later, I just finished my master's degree. Congratulations, Adam. Awesome. Well done. Congratulations. I continued to listen to the podcast to gain insights on how to better execute and take advantage of this educational opportunity. Thanks again for the great podcast and all the insightful discussions. I love it, Josh. I, I, I love it because Adam found a way to get somebody else to pay for his master's degree. Like, that is brilliant. If you can do that, that is a great choice. Definitely sounds like advice we would give. Definitely does, yeah. Save your own money. <laughs> But Adam has, he goes on, he's got a couple questions, though, at this, this uh, juncture of his career. All right, first he says, now that I'm done, I have two questions I'd love to hear your perspective on. First, I've been given an exciting opportunity to continue my education and pursue a PhD, working with the professor who sponsored my master's research project. It would require moving across the country to work in the lab since I was able to do my master's remotely. That would require me to either quit my job and just work on my PhD full-time or switch roles within my large company and drop to part-time work while doing my PhD research. Either way, I'd be sacrificing my full-time salary for several years to either be living on just a stipend, a big lifestyle change financially, or having to juggle PhD and professional work at the same time. Do you have any advice to help me decide if the sacrifices are worth it continuing my education? I'm still unsure if the time, money, energy, and lifestyle change to get a PhD will pay off or if my master's will be sufficient. I'm struggling to figure that out. Now, he has another question, Dan, but that I think that's a really important one he's laying out. So, yeah, let's talk about it. Dan, what do you think? Should he sort of uproot his current employment situation, and literally his life, uh, in wherever it is he lives, to move across the country, start this PhD program, have a change in finances? Is that worth it, Dan? What, what should he think about? 
<laughs> Josh, I don't know what you would do in this situation, but that'd be a, a very tough lifestyle change, I think, to go from a salaried position uh, to probably making less than half of what he's making now as a stipend, right? Um, so I, I think Adam is right that this is a difficult decision to make. Yeah, Dan, you know, it's funny spending a lot of time I spent a lot of time in my previous job working with first-year graduate students. And it's kind of interesting because sometimes you have this almost bimodal distribution of folks where graduate school, and in this case, I'm talking about like a a science PhD program that pays you a stipend and insurance and, and all of that. Whereas you have the students who maybe came straight from undergrad who were making no money before coming into a PhD program where they're making, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and have some health insurance and yeah. they're getting their own apartment for the first time. And, you know, that was my experience, Dan. When I first came to grad school, you know, our stipend was very low compared to what it is $18,500. That's what Not it was, that I remember. But I don't know about you, but I felt like I had a ton of money. I felt like compared to yeah. being an undergrad, you know, I was upgrading from like the ramen packets that were five cents to the 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 microwave mac and cheese that was like a dollar ninety nine, right? You know, I thought I was living living large. Uh, but you know, at the same time, you've got those students, but then you have the other students, which is actually most students these days in a science PhD program who actually did spend some time working in a real job. Uh, for a year, two years, five years, uh, or sometimes even longer, who then make the decision, like Adam is contemplating, to come back and get their degree uh, to hopefully uh, benefit their career in the long term. But in the short term, that can be really hard to go from making you know, decent money and, and cutting your salary, as you said, maybe as much as in half, um, changing your benefits. Or more. Or more, or more. And so, um, you know, I think there's a lot of thought that goes into that. And I'm really glad Adam is bringing up this question because I think it's a really common one that a lot of folks face when trying to make that decision about going back for a PhD. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the money side of this because I think that is a huge factor, obviously. But the first thing that I want Adam to do is to think deeply about the types of jobs that he wants to get. Um, So I think this decision depends pretty centrally on the likelihood that the types of jobs that you want, the other people that are applying for those also have a PhD. So if you want to be a college professor, get a PhD, right? There's not, there are not many paths to that job that don't involve a PhD, uh, particularly in something like robotics or one of the engineering uh, fields. But if you are working in industry, it may not be a requirement and you may not know anybody in your department or in your group that has a PhD. It may not be a common thing in the field of robotics. I don't actually know. Uh, Josh, my last job I worked, it was a software company. We were doing energy efficiency software, but we had a PhD. I had a physiology PhD. One guy was an astrophysicist PhD. Uh, we had a civil engineer and I think somebody had a, like a data science PhD that may have actually been applicable to our job, but a bunch of people with PhDs none of which were related to the thing that we were working on. And so I'll say that having a PhD does give you these transferable skills. I think it looks good on your resume at that point. But did that training actually get us those jobs? I can't say that it did. Yeah, Dan, I think I think that's really the key thing. And will this PhD allow you to have access to the types of jobs and career that you ultimately want? You know, is there a certain upward mobility maybe in the field that you are interested in, in robotics, that, you know, you're going to hit a ceiling much earlier 
uh, without that PhD, with just having the master's degree. But, you know, beyond that, I think it's important to think about if there are different types of jobs at different with different educational, the different educational levels give you access to, do you also want those jobs? Because certainly, I know in, in industry fields, you can make a really nice living doing some master's level work in industry and really like doing that type of work. And in fact, the types of jobs that the PhD may give you access to may be very different day to day than the type of work that some of these um, positions that a master's degree is sufficient. So it kind of depends on you. And, and those are all, those are great jobs and great careers as well. So part of it depends, just like you said, Dan, on doing a lot of, a lot of thinking about, will the PhD open up doors that I want to walk through? Um, and, you know, Adam, I think it's great. You say you work in a company now. I'm assuming it sounds like it's related to the type of field or the type of work that you might want to do someday. So you likely are familiar with what types of jobs, at least in that industry, are available to people with just a bachelor's versus having a master's degree versus having a PhD. So assuming you want to stay in that industry you know, are there actually PhD required jobs? And if so, are those the ones you want? What's the pay difference? These are all important questions. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to add on to what you said, Josh. I think there may be careers, scenarios in which a PhD gets you access to a job managing a team, perhaps. And you might be the person that wants to manage a team. And you may be a person that would hate that. And You'd kind of be promoted out of your proficiency, which maybe is working with your hands on actually building robots. I don't know what roboticists do day to day. Maybe they program. But the point is, those jobs may be desirable to you. They may not be. And so what I would suggest is going to talk to PhDs in your company or that you can get connected to through your networks and ask them, are you glad you did it? Do you wish you hadn't? Are you working with people who have master's degrees that are doing fun things that you do. There are people out there that have this job that you want, and uh, it's so easy to have them talk to you and to tell you something that the two of us, Josh, just don't know. We haven't been in the robotics world. And so go use those resources that are available to you. But now, Josh, let's talk about money, because this is (laughs) yada, 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 career satisfaction, right? Let's talk about money. What do you got? There are a couple ways to look at this. No doubt, as, as Adam has articulated and is very aware of, in the short term, there's going to be a financial hit to leaving this job that he's in. No question. And, and going to get the PhD. I guess it's a little bit about, it's a little thinking about the opportunity cost. So you could calculate, actually, let's say your PhD takes you five years to do. And I don't know, maybe it'll be shorter than that. But let's take, it'll take you five years. And let's say you're making $30,000 less a year, uh, just as an example. So that means it's going to cost you, in real dollars, $150,000 to leave your job and go get your PhD. Now, that's not considering any of the factors we just talked about that also have value, but from a pure financial standpoint. Now, it's also important, though, for you to consider what types of jobs will I likely get with this PhD? Are they different ones than the ones you would have had as a master's? So you could probably do a little bit of research online or talking to people in your company. You know, how much do the people doing the master's level jobs make per year? How much do the people making the PhD level jobs make per year? If they make the same thing, (laughs) then it sounds like you're going to be out $150,000. But if those PhD jobs are paying $50,000 more a year, 
then, well, within three years, you've broken even. And over the course of your 30 years of a career, um, financially, it was a much smarter decision to go back and get your PhD. You'll be pleased to know, Josh, I actually tried to do this research. Fantastic. The Bureau of Labor Statistics does keep track of data on uh, median salaries based on education. I've got some links down there in the show notes. You're welcome to click through to them. The take-home message is that the median salary for any person with a master's degree, so this is across fields, uh, I assume it includes everything, not just the sciences, but the arts, the humanities, whatever. Uh, The median salary with a master's degree is $86,000. The median salary with a PhD is $108,000. So uh, $22,000 per year difference or, you know, 25% increase. But again, it really depends on your field. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to different estimates and uh, ways of quantifying this. Obviously, a master's degree in one of the STEM fields and in something like robotics is going to earn more and a PhD will earn more than one in uh, some other fields that maybe have just lower general salaries. So I think this data is out there and you can go find it. So you can do the math for yourself. You know how much you're earning. We don't. You know how much time it's going to take. If you talk to the PI of the lab that you're going to work in, uh, you may have a good sense. And I think bringing it back to Adam's specific scenario, he talked about the opportunity of either moving across the country and doing the PhD full-time or possibly trying to juggle both things. I think that's going to come down to just what you talked about, Josh, the opportunity cost. Each of those has some math that pencils out. First, he's going to decide, do I want the job that a PhD can give me? And then he can actually run the math on these two scenarios and say, well, it's going to take me less time if I move across the country and work on it the whole time. But it's going to cost me more money to do that. So anyway, I I think you get the point. I don't know how the scenario will play out, but I am confident in Adam's ability to actually do this math. And I think there is data out there that will help him. Yeah, Adam, I hope that was a helpful way for you to approach at least the cost aspect. But again, acknowledging that that is only one piece of the puzzle here. We also don't know how Adam feels about leaving the place where he lives to go to a very Huge different cost. place. That's, that's so true. He didn't go into a lot of detail on that, but I know for me that would probably weigh heavily on my decision is how I felt about leaving the place that I was. You know, do I love that place? Am I ready for a change? You know, that might swing, uh, you know, that might push the pendulum one way or the other, depending on how and you And there feel. may be maybe PhD opportunities nearer to where he lives, if that is a a factor that he needs to consider. I would say that you don't need to only look at the one lab where you've already done your master's degree. Uh, There are probably labs that would love to work with you maybe closer to where you are or that have a different financial outcome for you. And so I would definitely cast my net a little bit wider than just one particular lab. Um, Josh, I will throw in one more stat that uh, unemployment is, the unemployment rate is slightly lower if you have a PhD versus a master's degree or bachelor's degree. So things to consider. You may be less unemployed throughout your career. Yeah, Dan, I loved what you said just now too about you have this opportunity that's in front of you to do this PhD with this lab, this person you already know, and kind of locking you into this one opportunity. But if for whatever reason you you land on the side of now is not the right time, this is not the right opportunity for you, maybe it's possible that that the process of thinking about this opportunity might help you realize, hey, you know what? This wasn't the right time and this isn't the right thing for me, but maybe a PhD actually would make sense for me. I'm going to spend some time exploring 
what other PhD options might exist for me besides this one. And you might find um, if this is not the right thing right now, there might be other opportunities that will get you to the same place that do work better with your, your life and what you want to, and your timeline. You know, Dan, the one, one thing that this made me think about is I have a, a good friend who, who has a bachelor's degree. Is it me, Josh? It's you, Dan. Yeah, it's you. And, you know, they're, they're our age, Dan, which I don't want to disclose. Uh, <laughs> I'm know, my the... <laughs> age. The story is just about me. <laughs> That's right. But, but anyway, what, what this person was telling me about was they got their bachelor's degree, they immediately started working, some student loans to pay off, and then early on in their career, they really had this, uh, this idea and this desire to get a master's degree or some sort of graduate degree. But, you know, the timing when it was never quite right for a lot of these same reasons that, that, you know, Adam was talking about. It was going to be costly to pay, I think, in their field, there was going to be tuition, and they were going to have to leave the job they were currently doing. So they put it off. And then later, they kind of thought about it again, but then they were starting to think about having a family. And so the timing just was off. Yeah, the timing doesn't get better, I don't think. It doesn't get I don't think it gets. As you... I don't think it gets better. I don't think it gets better. But, you know, what they were sharing recently was, being in a position where they were ready to change jobs and change careers um, and realizing that now they'd been in the workforce for about 20 years, had a lot of really great experience that they'd built up on their resume, but finding this frustration that there were the types of jobs that they felt they were the most qualified for based on the decades of experience they had, they kept getting the door sort of shut on them or overlooked for people with less experience who happened to have a graduate degree. And so I think that, again, do your research on your industry, but um, it, it, it could be very possible. Many times there are companies and jobs that really do value, whether it's relevant or not, value that graduate degree, sometimes even at the expense, sometimes even over people with a lot of experience. And so I think you, you don't want to be looking back with regret 20 years from now thinking like, yeah, you know, I should have done that. Uh, not to say that it is the right choice for you, but there will always be some inconveniences to going back to school once you're already in the workforce, but it may be worth it. That's what I love about the hybrid model, even if it takes a little bit longer. How great is it to have a stable salary and be able to get some of that PhD work done? But anyway, that's what I would do. All right, Joshua, let's move on to the second question. Uh, I think we've, we've <laughs> given plenty of time to the first dilemma. Let's move to the second one. So Adam continues, I want to always be a lifelong learner. I've been involved in formal education for most of my life to help guide my learning. Now that I'm not in school anymore, at least for now, what tips do you have to help me stay current in my field? How can I always be learning and growing in my knowledge, exposure and skills, especially in a field as diverse and complex as robotics? Josh, this one really speaks to me. I am the, I, I think I ended up in grad school because I just love learning. I liked learning in high school and I liked learning in college. And I was like, well, this is what people like me do. They go learn more. Uh, and so this one really speaks to me. How do you stay a lifelong learner? I mean, first of all, I think if you are the type of person who is articulating and writing that you have this desire to be a lifelong learner, it's probably very likely that you will find ways to continue learning. Um, just because, like, like you said, Dan, and I know you, and I know you do this, you just naturally find ways to learn because you're drawn to it, almost like a moth to a flame. New information or things, when something interests you, you automatically 
go trying to find more information, which is is being a learner. Um, but you know, there are practical things you can do, especially you mentioned staying up to date and growing in your field, even if you're not actively in a school or educational program in that field. Make sure you join networks and go to places where people who also are interested in that topic are. Every topic, and of course, robotics is no different, has conferences, national conferences, likely regional conferences as well. I imagine there are professional societies you could join. Um, You know, go to those places. A conference can be a really engaging place to kind of boost your interest and enthusiasm on a topic to just really gather with other people who share your passion and enthusiasm for a certain topic. So I think that's a great suggestion. And most of them, you don't have to be a student or associated with a program in that field uh, or even working in that field to go and attend the conference. I'm, I'm taking this one to heart, Josh. I, a coworker of mine mentioned that there's a conference nearby here and it's in a field that is not my field specifically. It's like a computer security conference, mm. but I'm interested in it. And because it is outside of what I know, I suspect that it's going to be like fire hose drinking. I'm going to, I'm going to broaden my horizons much wider than the other people that are there who maybe know a lot about this and have background in it. So I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be really fun. I might understand 3% of what gets said, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to make new contacts. I'm going to get inspired by things I hadn't thought of before. Um, so I, I think that's a just a great piece of advice um, for robotics. I know there are tons of maker groups and hacker spaces. I think the friction of people working together, bouncing ideas off of each other, uh, seeing what somebody else has built or made or thought of, and and science, you know, research scientists do this by reading papers from other people. But I think specifically in in a field where you can make something, I th- think there's always the opportunity to learn from other people. So I love that. I would also throw out spending some of your time investing in other people. So if I want to learn something, the best way I can do it is to teach it or try to write about it or communicate it to somebody else. So I think the ability to maybe teach a class, you could help a high school. I know there are these robotics competitions. My nephew is in one. Um, So there are always opportunities to teach people. You can mentor people. Uh, It's such a great way to pass on what you know and also to make sure that you know it in a way that is so deep you can explain it to somebody else. Yeah, that's great advice, Dan. And also harness the power of the internet. There are, no matter what topic, no matter how niche, there are communities of people who gather together online to talk about the topic in excruciating detail and share new and exciting things. And so whether it's social media channels like Discord, Reddit, YouTube videos, or even even informal ways to get more didactic training with with sites like Coursera, um, Audacity, Udemy. I mean, those sites are really they really exist for the lifelong learners out there who just have an interest in a topic and want to learn without having to. It's actually kind of great without having to formally apply and pay hefty tuition to go to some and drive to some school every day for you know four years. Uh, you can just learn a topic you're interested in in an organized way. Yeah, I love it. Some of those courses go on sale periodically, and I'll just like buy a bunch of them. And then over time, I'll (laughs) get through them. You know, you can watch the videos online on your schedule. You don't have to show up at the community college at 6pm, four days a week. It's extremely convenient. Dan, this is not in our notes, but I thought of a great way that Adam could uh, really form community and stay on top of the topic he loves. He could start a podcast. 
It is a good way. You are absolutely right. Or a YouTube channel, which is what my kids want to be when they grow up as YouTubers. That's a good point. That's a good point. One last thing I will throw out there that I thought of, Josh, and, and, and I thought of you a little bit in this one, which is you will probably change jobs um, several times throughout your lifetime, right? Gone are the days when you're going to be at one company for 30 years and then collect a pension. And I think when you change jobs, there's this leap in understanding and learning. There's this huge learning curve. Josh, you just, I guess it was a year or two ago that you changed jobs, but I'll bet you learn more new things in the first two months on that job than you learned in the last nine months at your other job because you you had become accustomed to the patterns and the way of doing things. So your rate of learning decreased because you'd been there a long time. Moving to this new career is, is again, the fire hose opens and you've got to learn everything you possibly can to meet the challenges of the new career. So I think recognizing that as an opportunity is not a bad thing that changing jobs a couple times throughout your career is going to be a way to open your eyes to new fields of robotics or research or whatever it is that you're interested in and use that when you feel yourself getting a little bit stale say is it do i need to change opportunities within the company maybe i need a new challenge or a new project or i need to work with a different team or do i need to go start searching somewhere else for an opportunity that i just can't get where i am well adam we hope that was helpful and you mentioned that you wrote in three years ago and you're writing now. So I hope three years from now you'll write in again and let us know what you did and how it turned out. And in fact, you know what? Don't wait three years. Just uh, reach back out and let us know what you picked and how it went. That'll be on episode 299. (laughs) That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we love talking about uh, the topics and questions that come to the minds of our listeners. So if you have one that you'd like to share with us, we would love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com or send us a tweet slash X at hellophd. If you'd like to support the show, you can share it with a friend, a lab mate, or your department listserv. We reach new listeners entirely by word of mouth, so we need your help. If you'd like to become a patron, simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money so we can buy all of the milkshake IPAs. And we especially thank the ongoing support from all of our patrons. All right, Josh, I have finished this beer. It's got a little bit of a hoppy sediment at the bottom. <laughs> so that's where the milkshake texture has come in for me. Uh, not loving that part of it, but the rest of it was, was great. So thanks for sharing. All right, Dan, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. My milkshake IPA brings the boys to the yard.